0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves, their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. Alright, hello everybody and welcome to the first episode in a brand new series focusing on waterway regeneration. In the last few years of hosting this show, it's become vividly clear to me just how important and yet overlooked an issue that the health of our water cycles are. While the climate change narrative has mostly focused on the concentration of CO2 and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere since the industrial revolution, we've ignored the essential role that the water cycle plays in regulating global temperatures. In this series, I'll be speaking to an incredible list of scientists, farmers, and restorationists who are dedicated to reviving the precious waterways of the world. From the urban environment to the deep seas, our actions will determine whether or not we preserve our aquatic resources and all the life that depends on them for future generations. Now in this first episode, I got to speak with Enric Sala, a renowned ecologist making a clear case for why protecting nature is our best health insurance and why it makes economic sense. Enric is the director of National Geographic's Pristine Seas Project, which has succeeded in protecting over 5 million square kilometers of ocean and created 22 marine reserves. Dr. Sala has received the Young Global Leader Award by the World Economic Forum, a Research Award from the Spanish Geographical Society, the Lowell Thomas Award from the Explorers Club, and a Hero Award from the Environmental Media Association. In his new book, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild?, He tells the story of his scientific awakening and his transition from academia to activism. More importantly, he shows the economic wisdom of making room for nature, even as the population becomes more urbanized and how saving nature can save us all by reversing conditions that led to the coronavirus pandemic and preventing other global catastrophes. Now in this interview, we begin by unpacking the changes that have occurred in our oceans in the last few decades and how this is affecting people all over the world even if you don't live anywhere near the sea. Enric also offers a lot of hope that our oceans can recover if we act swiftly and give them the space and protection to regenerate, as well as ways to do that. I learned a lot from this talk, and as I begin to learn more about how marine health is closely linked to terrestrial health, I would encourage those of you listening to examine how your own habits and lifestyle choices are connected to ocean health in ways that can be hard to see. So let's get this series started, and I'll hand things over to Enric. Dr. Henrik, thank you so much for taking time to be with me today. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Look, uh, this is the episode that is going to kick off this new series on regenerating waterways. And I'm thrilled to speak to you about this because you have quite a lot of experience, especially when it comes to ocean ecosystems. Now, you started out as a research scientist. And in the past, you've said that you got tired of what you'd say, writing the obituaries of the oceans and decided to finally do something about it instead. Could you start off by sharing a little about what led to the founding of Pristine Seas and what their mission is?
1: Yeah, you're right. I used to be a professor at the University of California in in San Diego. And my job was to conduct scientific research to understand what are the impacts of human activities in the ocean, the impacts of fishing, global warming, And one day I realized that all we were doing was just refining the obituary of the ocean with more and more precision. And that day I decided to quit academia. And I went back to Catalonia, where I'm from. uh, I think where you're based uh, right now.
0: That is where I am, yeah. We're not far at all from where you got started.
1: Yeah, so a little farther north from where you live. um, I went back there for a year to think. And I came up with this idea of why don't we go to the most remote places in the ocean, places that are still near pristine, and try to protect them before it's too late. So I came to National Geographic Society in Washington D.C. in 2008 and made a proposal to them. So let's do expeditions to the most remote places. Let's conduct scientific research. Let's produce films. Let's uh, try to inspire the leaders of these countries that own these places to protect them in large marine reserves, in large national parks in the sea. And in their infinite wisdom, they loved the idea. And I moved to Washington in July 2008.
0: And so since that founding with this mission that you've had, what have been some of the things that you've been able to accomplish and and the work that's gotten done since the beginning? Yeah, the
1: goal, our goal was to help to protect places in marine reserves, places without fishing, drilling, mining, without any extractive activity. And we have been very fortunate to have been involved in the creation of 22 of the largest marine reserves on the planet in the last 12 years. And when you put all the surface together, it's over half the size of the United States.
0: Yeah, that's not an insignificant amount of space. Now, let's start by getting a bit of a rundown of some of the major changes in the ocean ecosystems over the past hundred years and what this tells us about what the future will look like for the health of these ecosystems if we continue down this path.
1: Yeah, you know, humans have been using the ocean for thousands of years, but probably what happened in the last hundred years has had an impact that has been much larger than throughout all previous human history. In the last hundred years, we have lost 90% of the large fish in the ocean. Sharks, tuna, jacks, grouper, cod. Uh, global fisheries have increased their catch after the Second World War, but we reached peak fish in 1996, and the global catch of wild fish has been declining since. Two-thirds of the fish stocks are experiencing overfishing, which means that we are taking fish out of the ocean faster than they can reproduce. So the news are are not good when it comes to our exploitation of the ocean, which, except for a few exceptions, it's not sustainable. We cannot continue this way. There is another study that we published in 2006 projecting that if we continue fishing the ocean at this rate, most fisheries will collapse by 2050. In addition to that, we have global warming, which is making the ocean warmer and more acidic, killing coral reefs, melting the polar caps, and affecting fish and other species all around the world's oceans. And finally, we have pollution. And right now, what, what is more conspicuous than our plastic pollution? That has reached all of the ocean, from the shallows to the to the deepest part of the ocean, and the most remote places. So we have to do three main things. One is to need to we need to stop throwing plastic into our environment. We need to find alternatives to solve the pollution issue. Two, we need to phase off fossil fuels and shift to a renewable energy economy, so we can reverse the warming of the planet and the warming of the ocean. And three, to need we need to reduce the effort that we are putting into fishing if we want to continue fishing in the future. And we have to complement this with at least 30% of the ocean in marine reserves.
0: So those are all very big and broad things that we need to change, and those have been echoed through a lot of organizations and businesses and and governments, it's fairly understood that all of those things need to be advanced in order for all ecosystems to recover. What have you found that are actual, I guess, metrics or solutions that you've seen work and have started to move anything in the right direction? Because as a whole, those things that you mentioned are not at all happening yet.
1: Some are happening faster than others, uh, none is making the progress that we need. But the solution that is most cost effective, that has a faster response is ocean protection. We have seen, I have seen it with my own eyes uh, off the Medas Islands, a little further north uh, from Barcelona and many other places around the world where we protect places from our activities, from extraction and destructive activities. Marine life comes back spectacularly. We did a study using data from marine reserves from all around the world, and we saw that the abundance of fish inside inside these marine reserves is 600% greater. It's over six times greater than in unprotected areas nearby. Not only the fish in these areas are more abundant, but also they are larger. They... You know, and I, I I, used to joke about this, but it, it's serious. When you don't kill the fish, they take a longer time to die. They grow larger. They have more sex and they pr- produce many more eggs, which helps to replenish the areas around. So these protected areas, if they are well managed, they will recover the abundance of fish within their boundaries and they will replenish the areas around. So we will have increased economic opportunities through ecotourism inside the reserves. People want to dive where there are fish, of course. And then outside the boundaries of these reserves, the fishermen will also benefit because they will have more fish to catch. So this is the fastest, most cost-effective solution that we have seen in the
0: ocean. Now that can sometimes seem a little counterintuitive because all of the seas and the oceans are are connected. And some people, including myself previously before looking into some of the work that you did, would think that that because all of these are connected, that they're, they're equally at risk. You know, some of the things that you talked about, the acidification of oceans, I would imagine is not just happening in certain spots. It's a larger trend. But are there areas that are more at risk than others and are certain parts of the world at higher risk as well? Or do these trends mostly affect the, the wider area?
1: You are absolutely right that the threats are not happening at the same intensity everywhere. There are areas that are warming faster, like the Arctic, for example. Uh, Colder areas are also more prone to acidification of the ocean. And when it comes to fishing, we have done something that when you look at it, makes a lot of sense. You you fish what you have near you, near the coast. And as you deplete the, the fish populations near the coast, you move farther offshore and, and deeper. Unfortunately, uh, we have depleted many of the shores of the world. Um, and the Mediterranean, for example, is, is the most overfished sea on the planet historically. We've been fishing there for, for thousands of years. So the solutions work everywhere. But the benefit is going to be different for different places so the more exploited one place is the faster that place will recover or the greater the, the relative benefit that we'll get from protecting which means that the place that has been overfished is going to benefit more from protected areas than a place that is pristine right uh, so there are areas that are priorities we have a study showing that if we it. 20% of the ocean strategically, we would be able to preserve much of the biodiversity. But if we also want to continue feeding the world, we would protect areas that, in addition to that, to, pres- to preserving biodiversity, also help to replenish the fisheries. So the scientific uh, evidence is overwhelmingly telling us that we need to protect at least 30% of the ocean if we are to prevent extinction of species and if we are to improve our food security.
0: Mm. And that also seems sometimes counterintuitive that by protecting areas of the ocean that you can actually receive better economic activity from fishing. And like you said, those breeding grounds that are created, obviously they don't just stay within that and they don't respect sort of uh, arbitrary borders that we draw out on a map. So they continue to migrate and go to other areas. Now, I personally worked in the fishing industry in, in Alaska for the salmon and the, the haddock, uh, or sorry, the hake and the pollock uh, fishing seasons. And some of those have much larger migratory patterns. And I remember speaking with some of even the research scientists who were coming and uh, taking data from the fisheries in order to keep an eye on how things were operating, talking about how a lot of the returns to the area of Alaska that we were at were smaller because of deep ocean fishing from Japanese trawlers out in the the deep water and getting them before they actually come back to spawn in the rivers. So is there still a case to be made that protecting localized areas in places like Alaska can prevent the depletion of fish when they're still kind of outside of the borders of control? Or is this something that needs to be kind of acted upon unilaterally between Japan and other actors in the process for it to have a real effect.
1: Yeah, no, you hit a, a key point here. There are some species of fish that move very little, right? So if you protect, you, if you create protected areas within a country's waters, the fishery industry is going to benefit within those waters. But there are species that migrate, like the tuna, for example, or salmon. Salmon migrates across the Northwest Pacific. But the tuna migrate and through entire ocean basins. Mm-hmm. You have the bluefin tuna, Atlantic bluefin tuna crossing from the Gulf of Mexico to the Mediterranean to reproduce and then back. So how do we do? How do we manage species that move in between countries that, in, that also go through international waters beyond national jurisdiction? And there are some organizations that are supposed to deal with this. It's what is called the Regional Fisheries Management Organizations, RFMOs. And for the Atlantic, for example, you have the RFMO is composed of countries on both sides, but also other countries with a huge stake on tuna fishing like Japan. So this commission for the conservation of Atlantic tuna is supposed to determine how many tuna can be caught every year to make sure that the species is viable and sustainable. Unfortunately, the decisions are political. So Japan and Spain and other countries push for the quotas, for the allowed quotas to be higher than what the scientists recommend. Because these countries and these industries are driven mostly by short-term profits instead of, of long-term sustainability. So the mechanisms are there to ensure the conservation, the viability of these species that migrate in between countries. But um, in most cases, it's not working because these species continue to, to be depleted. So we do have the mechanisms. We do know what we need to do to manage fisheries sustainably and to protect more areas. But unfortunately, we are dealing with humans And with uh, industries, especially the industrial fishing lobby, that is uh, more interested in short-term profits.
0: Speaking as someone who grew up in the middle of the United States for most of my life, or at least most of my childhood, and away from any coasts, I would think that, you know, issues like this dealing with ocean ecosystems wouldn't have a whole lot of an impact for inland dwellers. Can you tell me how the health of the oceans can have a direct impact on people not living anywhere near the sea?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, a fair question. And you know, most people believe that consumption of wild animals in China was not affecting them. And look, <laughs> now we have a global pandemic that has stopped everybody's lives. That has created the largest, the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. That has killed hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And that happened because one person in China was infected with a virus that jumped, that spilled over from a wild animal to that person. Now, this coronavirus pandemic is the loudest wake-up call in recent times that we are not in isolation with nature or with other people. Our health, the health of anybody living in Idaho is dependent on the health of the poorest person of the poorest pla- uh, country on the planet. Today's coronavirus, COVID-19, before it was SARS, MERS, Ebola, Zika, rabies, etc. So it's our globalized lifestyle has made it has made our impacts global our footprint global but also is has connected all of us not only human to human but human with all species on the planet in a way that we had never seen before and the health issues are not something that are related to global wildlife trade or destruction of forests in africa ocean ecosystems also uh, are very important for people's health the we have seen harmful algal blooms, these red tides being much more abundant and persistent in areas where the ecosystems have been degraded, have been overfished, and polluted. So, many of the pollutants, the toxins that these microscopic algae that, form, that create the red tides, are then vaporized and transported to the coast with the waves and the wind. And people are having more asthma and other respiratory issues. But when it comes to somebody who lives far away, now the ocean produces more than half of the oxygen that we breathe, more than all the plants in the forest of the land together. The ocean regulates our climate also and our activities on land, our burning of fossil fuels is warming the ocean and diminishing the ability for the ocean to absorb much of our carbon pollution, but also to continue making our climate stable and predictable as we are already seeing. So this is, these are just, one, this is, these are just why a few of the reasons why ocean health is affecting everybody around the world. And it's not just the ocean, it's the, the health of our natural world.
0: Have you seen any evidence to suggest that the proliferation of zoonotic diseases like the coronavirus are possible from marine species to humans? Or is that still pretty safely separated?
1: Yes, there are diseases like cholera, for example. There are pathogens that are transmitted to humans via marine animals. Um, but not directly. Like, you know, if a, a fish bites you, probably you're not going to get one of these infectious diseases. All these the recent zoonotic diseases have a terrestrial origin. But there are diseases that affect humans when humans consume toxic fish, for example. These red tides can kill fish and shellfish like oysters and mussels, but also these animals absorb these algae and these toxins in their tissues. And when people eat them, They can get very sick and die. We have seen on coral reefs where you have a pristine coral reef, the water is very clean. There are very few bacteria. As soon as we start overfishing and removing animals like the giant clams that filter the water, then we are facilitating the blooms of bacteria, many of which are human pathogens, like the bacteria that causes the cholera, for example. So by degrading marine ecosystems, we are turning the ocean into more of a microbial soup, but also we are increasing, we are producing a a rise of, of the microbes, of the pathogens that affect humans too.
0: And in your opinion, why do you think it's been so difficult to connect public concern with issues regarding the ecosystems of the ocean? Do you think it's more just because it's a disconnect that most people don't live either terribly close or directly interacting with the ocean on a regular basis? Or just because so little is still known about the complexity of the ecosystems off of our shores?
1: Yeah, ecosystems are so complex. We know so little, right? There are 9 million plants. There are 9 million species of plants and animals on the planet. And probably nine, uh, 1 trillion types of microbes. But we have described, scientific, scientists have discovered and described about 2 million of those only. So we know very little. And if we know little about who these species are, we still know less about what they do. But we know enough to know that if we disturb these ecosystems, if we remove species, if we deplete species, if we degrade habitats, the whole system collapses. And with the collapse of the ecosystem, also go the, all the ecosystem services that these uh, species provide for us, like oxygen, uh, water filtration, flood protection, pollination of our crops, et etc. et cetera. So we don't know enough, but we know enough to know what we shouldn't do. We, sh- we should not do more harm. We should protect more areas. And when it comes to what we can do about it, you know, it it is, it is clear, I I, I like to use an analogy, imagine that you you you're about to board a plane. And the flight attendant tells you that we are missing five screws. We don't know what the function of these screws are, you know, maybe it's in a wing or on the engine, but we know we're missing five screws. Would you board that plane? Yeah. But we are with we would think that this is not safe, but we are removing species. We are driving species extinct from ecosystems without knowing what the role is and the consequences um, can be catastrophic.
0: Sure. And I think a lot of cases we're not even aware of where we're losing those species from or at what rate either. Although those unknowns are kind of stacking up to a situation that we're (laughs) not aware that's that's happening or the like, I said, the the speed at which it's occurring, and we're very, very unprepared for the consequences in in the sort of downstream effects as well.
1: Yes, and you know, you mentioned why people don't feel about about the ocean is we humans are very good at not caring about things that are out of sight, right? Out of sight, out of mind, and scientists have been warning people about the impacts of global warming for decades. But many people thought, well, this is something that is going to happen in the future. It's not going to happen to me. Scientists have been warning people about the consequences of loss of nature for decades. But people say, well, you know, this is something that happens in the Amazon where they are burning the forest or cutting the forest. This is not affecting me. But again, this coronavirus pandemic has made it very clear that the destruction of nature is affecting all of us. This is, I hope, the straw that broke the camel's back. I hope that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to be the time where humanity will wake up and realize that we are not the masters of the universe, but we are a part, one interdependent and interacting component of the larger community of, of organisms on our planet. I think we, we need to need a, a little more humility. You know, our technology will not save us from our, ourselves. You know, we, what we need to do is to change our behavior, but you know, the human nature is probably much more complicated than, uh, you know, changing be- human behavior is more complicated than sending a space probe to Jupiter, you know. Uh, so that's one of the things we have to deal with. We have to deal with, with humans.
0: It also seems like, you know, even though it's maybe not super intuitive for most people to realize how ocean ecosystems affect people further inland, it can also be difficult to see how those people inland are directly affecting the health of the oceans. Like, for example, uh, the way that agricultural runoff and sediment from loss of topsoil in the Midwest drains down the Mississippi River and is contributing to the the dead zone in the Mississippi Delta. And there's examples like that all over the world where bad practices of ecosystem management from much, much further inland are directly responsible for impacts like the destruction of coral reef systems and acidification and toxicity in oceans that are literally downstream from where those contaminants are generated.
1: I I think this example is, is a perfect illustration of how our activities no matter where on the land affect the ocean, because the ocean is downstream of everything, Another example is burning coal uh, to generate energy, releases mercury in the atmosphere, and that mercury ends up in the ocean. And the tuna and the large fish eat smaller fish that have been eating um, little shrimp that have been eating little algae that have incorporated mercury in their tissues. And the larger the animal, the more pollutants it, it accumulates over the lifetime. So we end up eating the toxic mercury on fish you know, that comes from our own uh, emissions. So we are, we are ending up, you know, we, we ended up eating not only mercury and other pollutants, but also microplastics that we have thrown in the environment. We are eating our own crap basically.
0: Sure, sure. And there's, yeah, like you said, there's so many examples of that. Now, we've talked about a lot of the grim situations about the impact that humans are having on oceans and such. Let's switch gears a little bit now and talk about some of the things, like we've already gone over a little bit, that are really having a positive impact and starting to move the needle towards regeneration. You mentioned ocean conservation as being one of the most effective ways, especially to combat things like overfishing and the recovery of biodiversity of certain areas. Now, I've heard varying degrees of efficacy on projects like this. I know some of them work extremely well, and I know some cannot be as effective. What are some of the, I guess, common factors that you've seen in conservation projects like this? Is it a matter of the way that they're managed? the way that they're incentivized for the people who are involved or the governments that are involved? Um, Is there like a better approach of either offering incentives for those areas that are mostly motivated by short-term profits? Or do you think it's more effective to have penalties and, I guess, restrictions or consequences for a lack of adherence?
1: I think we need all of the above. There is a problem with ocean conservation. Well, there are three main problems, I think. One is that most people, are not aware of the benefits of protecting areas. As you said before, and it seems counterintuitive, but right now only 2.5% of the ocean is fully protected from fishing, oil drilling, mining, and other extractive activities. 2.5% only. Uh, That means that 97.5% of the ocean is like a, a bank account where everybody withdraws, but nobody makes a deposit. And you don't need to be an economist or a banker to know what's going to happen to that bank account. These protected areas are like savings accounts with a principle that we set aside that produces returns. And we have plenty of evidence from around the world that this, this works. But most people are not aware of the benefits and they believe that protecting areas is a drain. Protecting areas is a restriction on their on their freedom to fish. But the, the problem is that you know the, the big enemy of fishing is overfishing not protected areas so that's one we need to we need to do a better job uh, educating uh, stakeholders ocean users about the benefits of more protection two there is an issue of governance in many in most cases uh, protected areas have to be this uh, designated and managed by countries by government agencies But with shrinking budgets for conservation, this is becoming more and more difficult. But there are areas where local communities have done a great job protecting the resources. So if we were able to transfer the authority of management of coastal areas to local communities, they would have a, a greater vested interest in keeping these places in good health. And the final one you alluded to is the funding, the financing of protected areas we released a report on July 8th this year on the costs and benefits of protecting 30% of the planet. And we found that the benefits of 30% protection exceed, outweigh the cost by a ratio of five to one at least. For every dollar invested in protected areas, nature gives us at least $5 in return. And this is something extraordinary. This is, uh, this is a market, the market of nature conservation, part of which is tourism, part, part of which is enhanced um, food production around these protected areas. The future for this uh, sector is much brighter than uh, sectors like agriculture, for example, that is growing at less than 1%, or fisheries that is actually shrinking. Fisheries globally is, is a sector in, in re- recession mode, So if we are able to see these protected areas as good businesses, which they are, then we will not see them as a drain. But the investments that we need to make in the beginning to create them and make sure that they are well managed, they should be seen as another investment for a resilient uh, economy.
0: Yeah, that's really in line with a lot of the figures that I've seen for other types of ecosystem service investment. I just finished up with a series all about regenerative agriculture and though like you said the investment potential for conventional or industrial agriculture is extremely low i've been seeing things like you know five to seven dollars for every dollar invested in potential returns as you invest in actually repairing restoring or regenerating the ecosystems that you're trying to do business with extract a resource or whatever like it can be done only up to a finite point, like the analogy that you used with the bank account withdrawal. But if you look at it as an investment, as something that you build the overall health of, the products that you can get out of it are a fantastic return in the long run or even in the short run, depending on how that business model is run. But all of the side benefits turn out to help communities, to help all of the ecosystem services and the species that are not particularly exploited for economic gain and those in turn kind of have run on and cyclical services for the ones that that you can actually get a return on Um, now it like I do really like the model of conservation and and fortunately in a lot of areas oceans are ecosystems that can recover extremely quickly given the right uh, conditions but have you seen anything in these conservation models that actually help to assist the regeneration to recover faster or maybe adding something, um, pro- being a proponent of a specific type of regenerator. I've seen models like, uh, um, like seeding coral reefs. I've seen a number of different ones, some people using uh, art installations, some people using specific... Um, Types of materials on which different types of coral can grow in faster. Are you aware of many of these as as kickstarters for regeneration to accelerate the process?
1: Yes, I have seen a few of these. Um, The ocean is so much more difficult than the land, right? Because on the land, we can accelerate the recovery of an ecosystem through what's called rewilding. We have great examples where people have reintroduced native species, native herbivores that uh, were gone because of uh, too much hunting, uh, like deer or the European bison, beaver, and other species. Uh, And these species are, the reintroduction of these species helps uh, accelerate the restoration of the ecosystem. In the ocean, it's very difficult because it is very difficult to reintroduce species uh, at a scale that would work. There are all these projects about uh, regenerating, trying to regenerate uh, coral reefs, for example. They are well intentioned, but uh, there is only one that I have seen that works. And in isolation, they are not going to work. You know, if for example you spend millions of dollars to uh, replant corals, little baby corals, in an area in the Caribbean. That is one, one or two hectares. You can spend easily $1 million per hectare. Uh, and a hectare is nothing at the, at the scale of the sea, right? And your corals start growing. And then in two years, you get uh, a big hurricane or an El Nino year, and your corals bleach and die. That's it. Mm-hmm. Gone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No. Um And then the reef is going to be overgrown by algae. And once you have algae on the reef, seaweed on the reef, the coral larvae cannot um, settle. There is no way for the coral reef to come back. Now, this is the scenario on a normal coral reef today, and a normal reef means there are no large fish. you know the place has been overfished Now, if you have a place with all of its species, including the large parrot fish that eat seaweed, then these uh, fish are going to keep the reef clean for the coral larvae to settle and help to replenish the reef. So, all of these efforts for them to work have to be associated with fully protected areas. But still, even the most uh, successful ones, we have a problem with scaling. Because if it costs uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollars to uh, replant corals in a, a an area of a hectare, just one hectare, you know, you know, we don't have the resources to be able to plant corals on a scale
0: that will make a difference. Sure. Yeah, I can see how the investment for doing work at sea is, is much, much higher than trying to get work done like that on, on, on land. But, you know, you mentioned bringing in different species to certain areas and some of the the best examples of success have actually been bringing in apex predators like wolves to Yellowstone, which have huge impacts on the health of the ecosystem. And I know you know a little bit about bringing in apex predators into marine ecosystems as well. Can you tell me about how bringing in sharks can actually increase the overall number of fish in an area?
1: Yes. The best way f- to for the ocean to be restored is to let it restore itself, right? We can get European bison from Poland or bears from Romania and move them to the Pyrenees and that works. But, you know, moving sharks from one place to another doesn't work because many of these sharks migrate long distances. In the Mediterranean people also try to uh, relocate monk seals from one part to the other, but these animals can swim 500 kilometers in a week. So in the ocean, it is not, uh, you cannot expect that if you move one animal from one place to another, that animal is going to stay there. Also, we cannot reproduce species in captivity like sharks. Sharks have long lifespan in some cases, 25, 30, 40 years. Some of these reef sharks that, are, uh, that don't move so much, which would be good candidates for relocation efforts, so most reef sharks, like grey reef sharks, for example, they don't reproduce until they reach age seven, so reproducing these large predators in captivity to then release them in the field it just doesn't work it's not practical. so the best thing we can do again is to protect the large areas where they can come back and they can come back pretty fast and We have seen pristine reefs so we have been uh, when you think about the spectrum of ocean health from places that are pristine, full of sharks, where the coral reefs are thriving and healthy, uh, to places that are degraded, where the largest fish is a little damsel fish, and we, and everything in between. So we have seen that not only there are more sharks in the pristine places, but also there are more fish of, any, uh, of other species. Uh, it's like uh, the sharks are the... The keystone that keeps the ecosystem together, right? We have, we thought we went to a pristine reef for the first time in 2005, and I had never been to a to a wild, uninhabited, remote reef before. And we jumped in the water, and as soon as my bubbles cleared, I was surrounded by ten reef sharks, which came to check us out. After a while, they got bored and they left to do their thing. Then you look down, and there are so. Many fish in the corals are looking great, and we did studies and looked and found that the biomass, the tons of fish per hectare, the biomass of top predators in these pristine reefs is larger than the biomass of the prey. But even though there are less prey, there are still more prey than in places where people fish. So we are more formidable predators, even than, than sharks.
0: Yeah. Without question, the impact that humans are having all around the world is is absolutely massive. But it is a huge, encouraging sign that with these little incentives and and changes, so much can happen with these ecosystems and coming back through their own regenerative processes. Now, you mentioned, too, about kind of the effects that COVID-19 and the pandemic are having on our consciousness about the interconnected nature of everything that we do. And there's actually been a lot of hopeful things that have come out of this as well. And, you know, much has been made about the diminished greenhouse gas emissions and other forms of contamination being reduced during the pandemic. Do you see hope in what's coming out of this and some lessons that are being learned? Or do you think as things start to begin to come back to normal, it's mostly going to be forgotten?
1: Coming back to normal. That's the problem, right? Most people would like to go back to normal. Go back to where we were, but I think that's one of the worst things we could do. Sure, China is already uh, putting more pollution in the atmosphere than pre-COVID. Uh, so people want to go back to normal. Governments want to go back to normal, which means people will consume and countries will burn fossil fuels, and that's not you know that's that's not what we should be looking for. Uh, But one thing that we have learned from this pandemic, you know, you have seen these stories online of dolphins or even a humpback whale inside marinas and mountain lions and deer inside cities when people were in lockdown. So it seems that nature came out from somewhere, right? And I think this is a great signal that uh, nature is sending to us. Nature is telling us, look if you just give me some space look what I can do look I, I, what I can give you I think that's that's the biggest lesson we have to take from this from this pandemic that if we just give nature a little space she can come back spectacularly faster than than we believe and provide many more benefits to us than if we continue destroying it
0: Yeah, and now in regard to the solutions that you've mentioned and the options that people have available, what would you say are some of the best ways that individuals, people like you or me or anybody listening to this at home, can do to actually contribute to moving the the culture towards a better understanding and a much more intimate respect of these systems? And also how they interact with us, the, the conditions that they create for our own lives and our own survivability in the long run, what are some of the actions or the things that we can do ourselves on a smaller scale to help to, uh, to advance these ideas?
1: Yeah, to me, there is one thing that is so easy to do, and it's good for you, and it's good for the planet, which is eat more plants. You know, a plant-based diet is the best thing we could do at the individual level. Because plants, to, if we eat plants mostly, we need less surface. Because uh, meat production requires so much surface and so much water. For example, forty-one percent of the surface of the United States, forty-one percent, is dedicated to raise livestock, mostly cows. Forty-one percent—it's crazy. And, and cows uh, produce less than 20% of the calories that, uh, that we need. Um, and people are eating too much animal protein anyway. And yeah, some people say, well, we need to eat protein. We need to eat uh, beef. Well, what do beef eat? You know, I want to be strong like a bull. Well, they eat grass. No, they eat plants. They just process the vitamins and proteins and other nutrients from plants. And and we then eat the the livestock and and get some of them. So it's the most inefficient, um, economically nonsensical way of producing food. So a plant-based diet would help our health, would get us all of the nutrients and protein that we need, and also would reduce dramatically the amount of CO2 and and methane that uh, livestock put in, in the atmosphere. Also, it would save us a lot of water because the amount of fresh water that is needed to raise a pound of beef is is, is ridiculous. So that's my, you know, we could talk about the laundry list here of things that everybody can do from using LED light bulbs to uh, using the bicycle instead of the car. But if there is one thing, that would be it in my opinion, a plant-based diet.
0: And I know that you're aware of certain other types of like ocean regeneration techniques, such as the production of seaweed, I'm sure, and mm. its ability to filter water, to create habitat for animals and to create a lot of useful products, including food that is, you know, something that's <laughs> the way it is now. It's not a big part of our diet and would definitely need some marketing and some change in culinary practices to to make it more common. How do you feel about that and its potential to, I guess, bring more attention to the health of the oceans and actually do something positive for it rather than just being a marketing campaign?
1: Yeah, no, you are absolutely right. Seaweeds are wonderful. I studied seaweeds for many years and I, and I love them. You know, you can get more iron and more protein from seaweeds than from kale, for example. And yeah, they absorb a CO2. From seawater, which means that they reduce the acidity of th- that part of the ocean, which is benefiting all other species. They provide the habitat for many other species, which also we like to to consume, um, and they are really really nutritious. But as you said, there is a there is a cultural uh, barrier here. Most people, well, you know, you think about China or Japan, they they consume large amounts of seaweed. Uh, it's part of their culture. But if you here in the United States or probably uh, in, in Catalonia, where you are now, if you Google uh, foods that contain iron and you're going to see nuts and garbanzo beans and lentils and beef and you know and see which are not on the list, on the top 10 list, right? Just because it's not part of the culture. But there is a huge uh, push now for including seaweed in, in human diet but also in animal feed because uh, livestock fed with seaweed also produce much less methane. Mm-hmm. So seaweeds can help us mitigate climate change by absorbing CO2 from, from seawater, by and feeding us uh, so we don't have to use resources on the land, and also by reducing the carbon footprint of livestock but the most important thing is that you know seaweeds. You only need seawater and sun. We don't need fertilizers. We don't need fresh water. We don't need complex machinery or burning all burning all these fossil fuels for uh, for uh, collecting your crops. You know, just basically in many places, you just put ropes in the water, and the seaweed larvae, the seaweed spores, will attach to these ropes and will grow. So it's the most cost-efficient, one of the most cost-efficient solutions we can do to, to help feed the world.
0: Yeah, it's something that I've gotten really excited about. And though you mentioned that, you know, it's not common in a Western diet, I think I'm a bit of an exception there because I actually grew up in Japan and I've been Ah. eating seaweed ever since I was a little kid. And it's a shame (laughs) that it's not a bigger part of the diet here in Catalonia because, you know, the food here is amazing. You know better than I do. The Mediterranean diet is an example all around the world. And to include some seaweed in that would probably be just like, uh, you know, the thing that tops it off as, as a healthy diet for anyone to follow. Um, well, that's a
1: good, that is a good business for you there.
0: There we go. I'm not quite that close to the ocean. I'm closer to the mountains, but uh, <laughs> it's not far off, 30 minute drive. Um, so let's take an opportunity now to talk a little bit about your book, The Nature of Nature and Why We Need the Wild. We talked so much about rewilding in a case of conservation and allowing ecosystems to recover on their own. Tell me a little bit more about some of the major points that you go through in this book and how it reinforces that idea.
1: Yeah, this book is uh, my love letter to the planet. Mm. It's um, a book where I use stories of my own stories and stories of fellow ecologists who discovered key principles in ecology of how nature works. In right? 20 years ago, eight people were locked in a futuristic uh, construction building in the desert of Arizona. They were supposed to live together without any contact from the outside world. And they tried to reproduce uh, the the Earth's ecosystems. A little coral reef, a little wetland, uh, a tropical forest. So they were supposed to be completely uh, self-contained. But it didn't work. The experiment failed and after a year they had to open the valves to get to let oxygen get in because the, the those ecosystems that they tried to recreate collapsed. So we are not able to create an ecosystem to support eight people. So how can nature do it? You know we have nine species, uh, sorry nine million species of plants and animals, a trillion different types of microbes. They all interconnect And into the pen, and it works. It works. It's been working for us for two hundred thousand years, just fine. So it is this fascination about the workings of nature, that the nature of nature. That if we understand how wonderful, how astonishing and complex the machinery of nature is, it will be very clear that you know it's an engine that works and keeps us alive. It's our life support system. Let's not tamper with it. Uh, removing species. Uh, this may seem, you know, removing one of nine million species may not seem like a problem, but it could have dire consequences for us. You know, eating one species uh, in China has had tremendous consequences for the entire world. So, I my th- this book is a uh, a way for me to make people fall in love, uh, be fascinated, have a uh, develop a sense of awe and wonder about about the baroque of nature, of how nature works. And of course, making the case for protection of at least 30% of the planet. And I'm making the ecological, scientific case, an economic case showing why protection of 30% of the planet would produce a larger economic output than a world with no more protected areas. Making the moral case, because nature is not something that is there is out there to serve us. You know, we are not the masters of the universe. We're just one more citizen of the biosphere. And th- that was supposed to be the book, but then the pandemic happened. And I was able to stop the book, the book going to the printer and write one final uh, chapter on the nature of coronavirus, making the case for you know, our broken relationship with nature as the cause of this pandemic and, and the cause of other global crises. But the good news is that we know we have so many examples of these miracles happening all around the world. If we give nature space, she will come back and she will take care of us.
0: Mm, Very well said. Well, Andrik, before I let you go, can you tell our listeners how they can get themselves a copy of your book and where they can find out more information about your organization, Pristine Seas, and some of your previous work?
1: Yes, for pristinsis, you can go to pristinsis.org, and there you will be able to find information of the 30 places that we have visited in the last decade with photographs, videos, and maps of the protected areas that we have helped to create. And The Nature of Nature, the book, is coming out on August 25th, but you can already pre-order Everywhere online, you know, I'm not going to uh, publicize one specific online <laughs> bookstore, but everywhere online uh, where books are sold, you can find The Nature of Nature now.
0: Fantastic. Well, I tell you, it has been an absolute pleasure. And I really agree with these ideas that you're advancing in such an important time when people really need to make this connection about the impacts that are happening, the way it's clearly affecting all of our lives, and how. It all comes back to the way that we are managing, interacting, and seeing ourselves as a part of the ecosystems that uh, <laughs> that make up this entire planet. So, thank you so much for taking the time. Bonatarda from Catalonia, and I hope we can stay in touch.
1: Thank you so much, Oliver.
0: Muchas gracias. <laughs> Alright, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info@abundantedge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like Clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform. And I'll catch you on next week's show.